Well, as you can all see, we're in the middle of the season when we in the church office, we start hedging our bets as to which Sunday is going to be the lowest attendance of the year. This one might win the prize. We'll just kind of have to see how it goes. But the reason that this is the case is because we're also in the time of year when everyone is scrambling and running and striving and planning and scurrying to rest. Lots of work being done at this time of year in order to catch some much-needed rest. As the children of Israel rubbed their blistered and calloused feet at the end of a 40-year hike through the Palestinian desert, they stared longingly across a steep gorge with a river running through it, across to a land of immense blessing, a land of rest. But before they could enter it, They needed another kind of rest first. This is the good news of Jesus Christ told the life of the Old Testament person who bore our Savior's name, Yeshua, Joshua. And it is a good news of rest for us. Rest from fear, rest that paradoxically requires effort from us but a rest that is all because of grace. And we find it in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and it's also printed for you on page 6 of your bulletin. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, and to the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all, that the, law, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do pray and ask that you, through your written word this morning, that your Holy Spirit has given to us, 
that you would illuminate our minds and give us light to see what it means, give us light to see how it applies to us. And Father, we pray that as a result of these things, that you would give us rest. Not just rest for our bodies, but the rest that our souls so deeply need. A rest from fear, especially. And that you would do these things, Father, not because we have somehow earned a great station before you, not somehow because we have climbed a ladder of morality and impressed you, but, Father, simply because you love us, because you are merciful and kind and gracious God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who shows us this the most. We ask that you would do these things for us in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So if you and I didn't know anything about the book and we had never seen the movie and then someone came along and read out loud these words, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. How in the world would we know that this line came from the middle of The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis if we just heard it for the first time, spoken by someone? In fact, even knowing that this line comes from this classic book, it doesn't really tell you what it means. Now, to understand this line, you have to know the context around the quote, don't you? You have to know the story. And you have to know that the person that they're talking about is a giant lion. And to understand it even further, actually, you have to know that this lion represents Jesus Christ. And you have to know that the witch in the story represents the devil. And winter represents sin. And two sisters and two brothers in the story represent all of humanity. In other words, you can't understand this quote without understanding the context. And that's what we're going to do first this morning. We're going to take quite a bit of time here at the front, and we're going to put Joshua chapter 1 in context. We're not just going to dive in and pretend that this chapter exists all by itself, isolated from the rest of the biblical story. Because God never intended for us to understand any of his word in little chunks that we get to pull out for our own use and make it say whatever we want or interpret it however we want. But we have to understand every chapter and every paragraph and every verse in light of the whole story told by his word. God the Holy Spirit writing through the author of the book of Joshua, never intended for us to come to Joshua, having forgotten what's already happened beforehand. So how does the story of Joshua fit into the bigger picture of the Bible? We'll take a little time here at the beginning and rehearse maybe what God has done up to this point. As Christians, we have always believed... The Bible is the true story of salvation. It's the true story of God's rescue plan. And it begins, and it actually ends, the Bible does, in a garden. 
And actually, there's a garden right in the middle, the crucial middle point of the story, too. Gardens are really important in the Bible. In the beginning, the man and the woman, who have paradise at their feet in their garden that God has made for them, they rebel against their good God. And in doing so, they lose fellowship with Him, and sin and corruption and death enter into all of creation. Death and sin separate the man and woman, and now all of us, too, from God. Death and sin separate us from a harmonious relationship with nature, and it places nature at war with us. And so we pollute it, and we destroy it, and we rape it, and it comes at us with hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and fires. Death and sin separate us from each other, man against woman, father against son, mother against daughter, brother against brother. And so we have murder and stealing and rape and racism and sexism and war. Death and sin separate us in one sense even from ourselves And so we experience sickness and disease and aging and mental disorders and discontinuity between our mind and our bodies. And finally, the greatest curse of all, the ripping apart of our bodies and souls, the two parts of us that were always meant to stay together, which is what happens when we die physically. And so God sets in motion his ultimate plan to rescue his creation from sin and death and now the power of Satan. And so in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, God makes promises to a man named Abraham. He promises that Abraham's family will become great and that nations and kings will come from him. God also promises land to Abraham and his descendants a place for them to live where God will be their ruler and they will live in blessing. A picture, although it's going to be an imperfect one, a picture of what was intended originally in the garden. And finally, God promises to bless all nations and all peoples through a very particular and special descendant of Abraham who's going to come someday, the man that we worship as Jesus, God the Son. By the time Moses is born, at the beginning of Exodus, Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, they have been slaves by this time in Egypt for 400 years. It seems as though God's promises through Abraham, which were repeated again to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Jacob's 12 sons, these promises, it seems, have been forgotten by this point. Because when your people have spent century after century and generation after generation being whipped and beaten because your slave owners don't think that you're stomping your feet hard enough to mix water and mud together to make bricks, then stories of God's past promises, they start to sound like fairy tales. You don't think God remembers. You start to think that he has maybe forgotten your name and where you live. And so words like God's covenant promises, and words like faith, and words like the Lord's salvation, they start to sound like a bunch of empty words 
spoken by TV preachers who smile way too much. But they don't feel like something concrete that you can hold on to. But then God does something amazing, and He does something unexpected. He brings deliverance. He brings deliverance, but not as you would expect. He doesn't send some massive invading army that overpowers the swords and the chariots of Egypt. That's how we would do it, but that's not how God did it. He sends one guy with a stick who can't even speak very well, and his brother, who's a lot better at melting down other people's jewelry into golden statues than he is at intimidating Egyptian kings. And fortunately for us, fortunately for all of us, God always chooses to use people like this. But it's God's power and it's God's glory that wins the day in Egypt. Not the strength, not the intelligence, not the speaking ability of his servants. And so God saves and delivers his people through a series of miraculous events that we read about in the book of Exodus called plagues. All of these plagues are a way for God to reveal that these so-called gods that the Egyptians fear, they're just like the fake wizard at the end of the Wizard of Oz, a scared little phony behind a curtain who's pulling at levers and pushing buttons to scare everybody else into submission. God shows up and says, no, I'm the real deal. The rest of them are just fake. This is what the plagues tell us. And then, after Pharaoh's heart has become hard as granite, and he refuses to let the people of Israel go, God delivers his final judgment. A judgment against Pharaoh himself, who's also considered to be a god by the Egyptians. God sends his death angel to take the lives of all the firstborn children of his enemies. But while sending this terrible plague... God also is gracious to his people and provides salvation from this judgment. And he does it by using a substitute. He does it by using a lamb. A lamb dripping with blood after it has been sacrificed. And this blood is used to stain the doorpost of every house that trusts God's promises. And so as God's phantom of death makes his way through every street in Egypt like something out of a horror movie, those with the blood of another, not their own blood, but the blood of an innocent substitute on their door, they only experience a cold chill that no blanket or campfire could take away, but they get to stay alive. And this passing over of his people in judgment becomes the meal that the Israelites will celebrate for thousands of years, the Passover meal, eaten for generations until a better meal comes along later. After the terrible plague of God's death angel upon the firstborn of Egypt, Pharaoh begs Moses and Aaron to take the Israelites and leave, just get out. But shortly after the last camel is packed up and heading east, Pharaoh is overcome with rage at what his nation has suffered because of a bunch of slaves. 
And so he sends his superpower army after the defenseless Israelites. And it's supposed to be wholesale slaughter. All muscle and hoofs pulling wheels with razors sticking out on each side, ridden by men shooting arrows and slashing down with swords and spears. It's supposed to be a sea of blood. But God, he turns it instead into a sea of salvation for his people and a sea of destruction for the Egyptian army. You know the story. God, Moses leads his people across dry land as God holds back the walls of water on either side. And the Egyptians follow them down into it in in what has to be like a really awful tactical error. And God zips up the parted sea like a jacket. And he just crushes the Egyptians with literally tons of water while the Israelites emerge safely on the other side of the Red Sea. So you and I have to understand, right here, right now, that all of these events together, the plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea crossing, this is the great salvation story of the Old Testament pointing forward to the gospel brought to us in Christ. For the Jewish people, for God's Old Testament people, the first five books of the law function a lot like the four Gospels of the New Testament function for us, the church. Because the law did two things. First, it told of his great salvation story, filled with God's acts of salvation on their behalf. And secondly, it told the Israelites how they were supposed to live Because they were now God saved, adopted, and forgiven people. And so the plagues on Egypt point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ going out throughout Israel and casting out demons and binding Satan everywhere he goes. The Passover refers to the communion table that the Lord Jesus sets for us on the very last night in which he's betrayed because he is the true Passover lamb. The, door, the blood on the doorposts depict for us the wooden cross that the Lord Jesus Christ would be nailed to. The descent of the people into the Red Sea between, as they go between the waters and then come out point to the baptism of God's people. A baptism that identifies us with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection our death to our old identity in Adam and Eve, and our new identity in Christ. Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels are an understanding and a proper interpretation of the law in the light of his coming. So when we get to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, it's like coming to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Both books are about the spread of God's people, the spread of God's message, the spread of God's kingdom. In Joshua, it happens through military conquest as God judges his enemies in the land of Canaan and gives the land to the Israelites instead. In Acts, it happens as the message of the gospel is proclaimed through the apostles and churches are planted all across the Roman Empire. But at the end of the gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, 
And at the beginning of Acts, we read the same kind of language that we get at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the law, and the first chapter of Joshua. God reminds his people of his promises, all that he's done to save them because of his love. He gives them the great mission to spread the kingdom. And he tells them to not be afraid, but to have courage because he will always be present with them, never leaving them or forsaking them. And I decided very purposefully on the front end to spend that much time going over the background to Joshua chapter 1. And no, it doesn't mean you're going to get a ridiculously long sermon this morning. But it's important because it really helps us better understand how Joshua could hear God say, be strong and courageous. Do not give in to fear, Joshua. And God tells him this twice in our passage. And if we were going to turn to the last two chapters of Deuteronomy before this, we'd see God having already said that to Joshua a few times. God was going to give the people of Israel the rest that they had been longing for for 40 years as they wandered through the desert. The rest of a land of their own which had been promised to them 430 years before. But before they received that kind of rest, God was offering them rest from their fear. And I don't know about you, But I would take rest from the things I'm most afraid of over two weeks spent on a beach every time. And if we took the time, we could list so many things as the source of our fears. And on the face of it, it might look as though our fears might differ widely and greatly from each other. Some of us have fear of the money running out, the bank account reaching zero. Some of us have the fear of not having children, fear of our children being hurt, fear of our children making the wrong decisions or walking away from God, fear of job loss or not being able to find a job, Fear of your marriage never getting any better than it is right now or has been for a while. Fear of never overcoming your addiction or fears of finding out that you have one and fears that others will find out you have one. We could continue to add to the list. But what the vast majority of all our fears come down to, what almost all of them have in common is fear of not knowing what will happen tomorrow. And Joshua and the people's fear was the same. What happens when we cross this river, they say to themselves? We've been wandering the wilderness as a result of God's discipline on us for our lack of faith. And we've had 40 years to think about nothing else but how big those giant warriors over there are. And how many of them there could be. And how big their cities are. 
and how high their walls are. And what would happen if they all made an alliance together and came for us? And what if the land isn't as good as we've come to expect? What if my piece of land ends up being smaller and filled with more rocks than yours? And what if my daughter marries a Canaanite and converts to Baal worship? And so on and so on. Forty years to think about all that and more. And how does God respond to this? He tells Joshua to remember what he's done in the past. All that's already been recounted for you in the book of Moses, the books of Moses, even the crossing of the Jordan River that God commands in verse 2 was supposed to be a dramatic reminder of what? The greater miracle of the Red Sea crossing. At the beginning of Israel's journey, right after they leave Egypt and right after they cross the Red Sea, God had produced water out of a rock. And then he did it again at the very end of their 40 years of wandering in Numbers 20, beginning and end. Here in Joshua 5, if we were to go forward a few chapters, soon after they cross the Jordan River, which is they're going to do what God commands them to do here in verse 2, right after they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan, the Israelites' sons who were born in the wilderness who were not circumcised, they will be circumcised. And the people will celebrate the Passover again. Why the repetition of these things? God does it to tangibly give experiences of memory, not just words. God gave Joshua and the people words and actions to remind them of his faithfulness to them in the past. His promises in order to combat their fears. And he does the same for us. But it's not just about the past. It's also about the present. While God reminds Joshua three different times of his past promises to Moses or the patriarchs of Genesis, he reminds Joshua of that in verses 3 and 5 and 6. He tells Joshua that he will always be with him, never leaving him, never forsaking him, in verses 5 and 9. God gives rest to his people from their fear by reminding them of his faithfulness in the past and his presence today And tomorrow. And what God also tells Joshua is that this kind of rest, it's going to require some work. It's going to require some effort on his part and on the part of the people. What kind of effort? Well, first it's going to require the work of meditation. The work of transforming the mind and the heart. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. For 2,000 years, from the earliest of church fathers down to our present day, theologians have applied this verse to the church by saying, Meditate on Scripture 
Meditate on God's promises and actions as recorded in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit will take those words and make them real to you and help you see how they apply to you and transform your heart of fear into a heart of rest and a heart of confidence. A second type of effort are sacraments of memory that are not just tools to remember the past, but actions that God uses mysteriously to be present with us in the now. Baptism, like circumcision for the Israelites, and the Lord's Supper, like the Passover for the Israelites, communicate to us the Lord's saving presence as He increases our faith through them. It's kind of like thinking about something we're all very, very too much aware of right now, which is the crushing heat of the sun. And we go out into the sun, and you don't have to be out there very long. You can walk from your car to the front door, and you are really tan. Because exposure to the sun makes you tan. Nobody's wondering about that. Nobody's looking at themselves in the mirror after they spent a few hours at the pool and going, I can't believe it. My skin got darker. That's not a mystery. That's not a mystery because they were exposed to the sun for a while, and that's what happens. But sometimes we can get too surprised that the peace that we want so much from God seems so far away in our anxiety, in our fear. We can seem too much surprised that that's the case until we realize maybe we haven't spent much time at all in God's means of grace, in His Word, in prayer, in coming together with His people to take part in the sacraments. These are the things that God has said, please keep using these. You need to keep using these. Just like he was telling the Israelites through Joshua and through Moses, you you need to keep doing these things. You need to keep practicing circumcision. You need to keep practicing Passover. I'm going to keep doing these things for you, like providing water out of rocks and leading you through bodies of water. Not just to show you that I'm a great magician but because you need to be reminded that I'm your God and that I'm with you and I'm for you. Well, the third and the final type of work that towards rest that we see here is the work of perseverance. The work of perseverance. As God told Joshua, the people, they were to arise and cross the river in verse 2. They were going to have to fight, as verses 5 and 6 indicated. They were going to have to use their God-given wisdom and reason and make preparations for the trip, as verse 11 says. And they were to live their lives according to God's revealed will, His law, as told in verse 7. The Christian life The Christian life is not just sitting around and thinking about Jesus. You know that. It's not just being even diligent to come to church every week and partake of these means of grace. 
hearing the Bible preached, taking part in the sacraments, taking part in corporate prayer. It's not just that. These things are the fuel for persevering. But perseverance is still more than this, too. It is every day. Personal. Individual perseverance lived out by taking responsibility with integrity for those obligations and those people that God has placed in your sphere. It is living according to your calling, defined not so much as your own personal dreams and vision for yourself, as much as what God has just put in front of you today, usually quite without asking you about it first. So many religions in the world are an attempt to escape the normal, to criticize the ordinary, to demonize or even attack and destroy the commonplace. But Christianity baptizes the mundane. It gives eternal meaning to the monotonous and says to persevering faith, well done, my good and faithful servant. Verse 8 Verse 8 is a popular verse to memorize in ninja scripture memory circles. When I was growing up, I would memorize this verse, and I thought it basically said, Know the commands of the Lord, all that He requires of you, and do it, and then God will bless you with success. You want to be good at sports? Obey God and He will bless you. You want to do well in school? Follow his commands and he will bless you. You want to look like a spiritual Christian hero that everybody thinks is amazing in the church? You need more friends? Study the Bible more and obey it. But God wasn't telling Joshua to think of the law like a lucky charm. Just pay God with your obedience and and he will pay you back with blessings. Christianity is not karma with a cross. That's not what's going on here. You and I never impress God with obedience. And we don't earn any of His blessings. Not any of His good gifts. He never ever owes anyone anything. And He never has. But remember. Remember. Who who doesn't get to cross into the land of promise? We find out in the middle of the book of Numbers, it's repeated again at the end of Deuteronomy. His name is the first to be mentioned in verse 1 in our passage. Moses. Moses doesn't get to cross into the land of promise. He dies an old man on the other side on the top of a mountain looking at the land of promise, but he doesn't get to go in. And that has nothing at all to do with the idea that Moses was eternally rejected by God or that Moses wasn't saved. The rest of the Bible, especially Matthew 17 and Hebrews 11, tell us that isn't true. Moses is enjoying the presence of God right this very instant, and he has been for a long time. 
But what does Moses represent for the rest of Scripture? And especially for Jesus and the New Testament writers. Moses represents the law. You see, the law could show the people the land. It could promise the land. It could foreshadow the land. It could point to the land. It could demonstrate all that would be required to enter the land. It even held forth what it would be like to live in the land and how to live with one another in the land and how to live with God and worship Him in the land. But only saving grace could actually bring God's people into the land. Only saving grace could actually provide rest. And the person God chose to represent this truth had his name changed from Hosea, which means salvation, to Joshua, which means Yahweh saves in Numbers chapter 13. Yahweh saves is going to lead the people into the land. Land they didn't earn or merit for themselves. We're told in verses 2 and 3 and 11 that the land is a free gift from God. And in the New Testament, another man with the same name, Yahweh saves, is going to lead the people, but his name is not just going to be meant as a message. It is going to be the designation of a reality. He will be Yahweh actually doing the work of leading his people, of dying for his people, of rising again for his people, and giving his people rest as a man. This is what the writer to the Hebrews was saying to his audience in chapter 4, which we heard from Jim earlier. It is Jesus' grace that gives us rest from fear. It is His grace that we see and place our faith in as our minds are transformed by His word and sacraments because Jesus Christ could enter the land unlike Moses because He had fulfilled the law to every nth degree for us. And so, meditate upon Him and come to Him And he will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.